They say you have to see it to believe it. And that phrase has been tested time and time again in social sciences, especially in the meteorology field. Can you believe that there's a tornado outside during a tornado warning, even if you can't see it if you look down the street? How would you know how to react to certain natural disasters without being able to see them with your own eyes? Would you know how to act or react in order to save your life when caught in a rapidly evolving situation like a rip current or a flash flood? Our guest today on this episode has been conducting research using the next best thing, virtual reality. Let's chat with Jace Bernhardt today on Weather Geeks. Jace, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marshall. Well, you know, it's a time-honored tradition on the podcast. I start out every episode with this question for the guest. How'd you become a weather geek? I was ready for this one, Marshall. I listened to many episodes. Uh, I like to say I was uh, uh, born in the frozen tundra of upstate New York, maybe slightly overdramatic, but uh, I was uh, privy to many great uh, snowstorms, um, you know, just close enough to the coast to get the uh, the big coastal storms of blizzards. I was a, a touch too young for the blizzard of 93, but a little bit later in the 90s and 2000s, uh, went through uh, many um, uh, large snowstorms in upstate New York, and that, that was a big part of uh, driving, and also a tornado outbreak, believe it or not. In uh, May of 1998, um, also uh, piqued my interest as well as a weak tornado passed very close to where I was. So like many of us, either an experience or just your wonder for weather that you grew up in and around. That's sort of the story that we often hear. And it sounds like it's very similar to you. I, I want to read you a little bit of um, the background here because uh, we actually I really need to see that we're really branching out in terms of where some of our guests are coming from uh, in terms of Jay's his background. He's a, an assistant professor in the Department of Geology, Environment, and Sustainability at Hofstra University in Long Island, New York. And I have a Hofstra story because the best man in my wedding and I was the best man in his. Uh, good friend, shout out to Dave Raphael. He's probably not listening, but shout out to him anyway. A former colleague and friend of mine, uh, he went to Hofstra University as well. He's the director of the department's MA in Sustainability program, and he has PhD and master's in geography with a focus in climatology from Penn State University and a bachelor's degree in atmospheric sciences from Cornell University. So in many ways, similar to sort of the academic home that I live in in the Department of Geography at the University of Georgia, though we also have an atmospheric sciences program as well. I mean, we're going to be talking about virtual reality today, so let's kind of start with the basics. Uh, give our viewers uh, and listeners a sense of what virtual reality is from your perspective. Well, sure. And actually, I got into this, I uh, just started as a faculty member several years back now at Hofstra University, and I had done some pretty uh, hardcore applied climatology research for my master's thesis and PhD dissertation, and I kind of wanted to switch. I enjoyed doing that work, but uh, I felt these, you know, pressing questions of communicating weather risk and uh, um, trying to, you know, enhance societal resilience, especially in a changing climate, um, might really be an interesting way to go. And I just happened upon a newly forming virtual reality lab um, at my university at Hofstra, and I tried it for the first time. I had never done it before, like many uh, folks, and I thought immediately, wow, this would be just such a great way to convey the dangers of severe weather, maybe, you know, convince people because we we know now meteorology there's been so much attention paid in, in in recent years i know you had dr myers on a recent episode that we know now that even if the forecast is great um if it's not communicated properly people don't understand it or act on it then how good is it actually so just kind of the all crystallized and i felt 
well. Looking at a VR simulation, when you put the the uh, the headset on, you're fully immersed in the surround sound and and the panoramic view. This can really just be transformational in, in communicating severe weather. Yeah, I think that's right. I, even our colleagues at the Weather Channel with some of their immersive mixed reality that um, Mike Chesterfield has been leading, who's the executive producer of Weather Geeks. I, I think that's right, and we'll, we'll dive all into this. But I'm curious about what the reception was when you started approaching public uh, officials, emergency managers, public safety uh, so, uh, officers, and so forth. I mean, did they kind of like, whatever, dude, get out of here? Or were they like, oh, tell me more? Yes, it's it's been sort of that you know, bifurcation of, of reception where, right, some folks, both in the general public, when I've done uh, guest lectures and seminars at things all over from schools to local libraries, um, and yes, also speaking with um, emergency managers and folks, you know, in the meteorology industry and beyond, and yes, it's really gone either way. Some people find it fascinating and want to know more and think it's the future and, and really, really love it, and then others, right, are very skeptical, and that's come out some of the research results. I'm sure we'll touch on later as well, so um, certainly, right, it's, it's, it, really is, uh, it really is fascinating how it can really go either way. And again, I, I think you've been doing research and you're also sort of thinking about ways to transition this to the applied space. But my understanding is that some people are also using this for teaching. I know there's some efforts at Mizzou, University of Missouri and others. Uh, so do you sort of see this as a trifecta, if you will, teaching, research and service to society? Exactly. That's, that's a perfect way to put it. And actually, it's it's kind of silly. But back in the 90s, I was watching a Simpsons episode where um, they sort of, you know, and the Simpsons are notorious for predicting the future. Simpsons are and usually on point. Was, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, exactly. So anyhow, um, there was like a flash road to the future where uh, uh, like Lisa Simpsons class was putting on VR helmets to learn about history. Um, and that's essentially what we're looking at, right? Like the ideal outcome of this is you have, you know, uh, virtual reality headsets for every every child in a class, whether it's a K to 12 or college, it could work either way. And you know, you see like the hurricane or in VR, whatever weather has that you're studying. Then you have a discussion that's so much more immersive and engaging for the students to really experience it fully in VR instead of just seeing, I don't know, a YouTube video or, or slides. And then that really helps to trigger discussion and, and understanding and buy-in of people into, well, the dangers of the hazard and the importance of the hazard. Now, I want to kind of dive into some of the things that you've been exploring in your own research. And I'm, I'm talking here with Jace Bernhardt, uh, who is at Hofstra University. I, I have to admit, this is probably my first guest on Weather Geeks and, and, and from Hofstra. And so I'm really excited about that because we kind of often have the sort of same sort of collective of guests from certain places. And that makes sense given our field. Now, I know for one, you've been looking at rip currents. Tell us about what you are finding there. Oh, thank you so much for asking about rip currents. And this is something that, like VR, I did not know much about until I started diving into the research. And um, rip currents are among the leading weather hazards in terms of fatalities annually each year across the U.S. And that's just such a powerful and frustrating statistic because rip current should not be killing people. It's just a matter of, of poor training of what to do, people not knowing what to do or panicking. And I think the VR really helps sort of uh, bring to the forefront those challenges. So for example, with rip currents, um, I'm not sure if it's come up on the podcast before, but the idea is they're not going to pull you underwater despite some common misconceptions. Either you should uh, swim parallel to shore. The rip currents are long and narrow perpendicular to the, to the beach to the shore. So if you swim parallel, you'll 
quickly get out of it, then you can swim back to shore because the idea is the rip current is, is taking you fairly rapidly away from the shore, but not drowning you, just sort of moving you. So if you try to fight it and go directly back to shore against it, you could run out of stamina and potentially get in trouble. So either swim parallel and back to shore or wait for help and uh, hopefully you're swimming on a guarded beach and the lifeguards are trained for this. They do the rescues all the time and rip currents, they'll come and help you. Um, but what you don't want, again, is people trying to fight it and, and getting tired. And there's sort of two things at play here, and the VR research really helped to crystallize this. One, of course, sometimes people just don't know what to do because um, there's not not a ton of outreach out there on rip currents, and people aren't always sure. So people you know, panic and react in the wrong way, which, again, is fighting it. Or two, and this is much tougher, but again, the VR helped to really demonstrate this. People do know what to do in a rip current, but sort of in the panic of the moment, they forget that lesson. So we sort of tested this by doing a pre and post survey and then a VR simulation of rip current where people could actually control, sort of like a video game, control their swimming. So we kind of uh, put them all of a sudden in the rip current. They weren't expecting it while just swimming on a quiet day at the ocean. Then we sort of measured their reaction. Did they try to fight it? Did they swim out of it? Did they wait for help? And if they fought it too long, it was said that they would have drowned potentially in real life because they kept fighting it, kept fighting it, and not getting anywhere, and were, and were getting tired. Um, and again, sort of one of the, the poignant things that even in the... So we first asked people, what do you do in a rip current, among other hazards? And a lot of people said what to do, swim parallel, wait for help. But then in the VR simulation, in the heat of the moment, so to speak, they sort of panicked and did the wrong thing and fought it. So, you know, we're fighting a lot of different things with the rip current, so it's a really fascinating area. Now, as we re we're recording this episode, it's the second week of May, so we're a couple of weeks out from hurricanes. So when we come back from the break, I want to talk to you about hurricanes. Sounds great. Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Josh Bernhardt from Hofstra University, and we're talking about seeing the weather, just like you're seeing us now on the Weather Geeks podcast. You're not just listening to us, you're seeing us. And we're talking with Jace about how virtual reality can be used in many facets of meteorology and atmospheric sciences, hazard risk management, and so forth. And I mentioned that we're almost to hurricane season, and perhaps by the time you see this episode, we will be in hurricane season. What what does your research and the use of VR tell you about hurricane hazard? Sure. So my entree into the VR world um, was with the help of colleagues um, in, uh, at Hofstra, with much more technical expertise than I, um, developing a VR simulation of a hurricane. Um, and did that back in like the 2018-2019 realm. Um, and um, what was fascinating about that is uh, we created this VR simulation of a hurricane. We decided to create it of a Category 3. So that's sort of the maximum reasonable worst-case scenario for Long Island where we are. Um, of course, fairly fairly far north in latitude. Um, so we decided let's just go with sort of the worst thing that could reasonably happen here. 
So we went out and did sort of two parallel studies, surveys with this VR hurricane simulation and talking 2017-2018 time period. First, we just did a convenience sample of students on Hofstra University's campus. And the idea was to have um, sort of two equal and random groups. One group saw the VR simulation of a hurricane and as well as some basic information with the cone of uncertainty, so the track of the hurricane forecast and some basic details on this hypothetical Category 3 that was going to hit Long Island in a, in a few days um, with high certainty. And uh, The other group just saw information that answered questions about how likely would, we, would you be to activate and such, and then one group got the basic info and saw the VR simulation. So you'd expect, of course, seeing the extra information, particularly this engaging VR simulation of a hurricane, would make those people more likely to say they'd evacuate, take protective action, check on elderly neighbors, all those sorts of things. And we did two studies. First, on campus, yes, it worked out the way we would have expected. Mainly younger um, sample, perhaps, you know, students, younger people that were sort of more receptive to using VR, even if they hadn't had experienced it before. So that sort of worked out the way we would have expected. But then we went into local communities, specifically to Long Beach, uh, New York, which is a barrier island community um, that was devastated um, by Hurricane Sandy. It had water coming in from both sides, both the Atlantic Ocean side and the bay side, which is between the barrier island and the main part of Long Island. Anyhow, and we were only five, six years out of that, so still kind of not that long ago for people. Um, an older um, leaning crowd in that survey went to a local coffee shop during the day things like that, public library. So anyways, in that sort of older-leaning crowd, um, more direct experience of a Sandy, um, the VR actually made them less likely to say they had evacuate, which is fascinating. and sort of immediately showed that this communication problem is much more complex than you might think. And some of the reasons why the VR was not helpful is you know, maybe older people um, certainly were not as interested in viewing a, sort of a newfangled technology like VR. But also, there were some underlying factors at play beyond just the VR. For example, these were people that in their minds, quote unquote, survived Sandy. Their home site had been destroyed or severely damaged. Um, but they didn't, you know, they, they made it through. So now there's that survivorship bias, right, of saying, okay, how could anything be worse than Sandy? So the next one coming, whether it's this hypothetical study you're doing or in real life, I'm not leaving because I made it through the last one. And that's a real problem. A number of factors, certainly one issue is that Sandy's not even a worst-case scenario for Long Island. Certainly surge-wise, yes, but not wind-wise, not even close to what could be. And then two, there are factors cited like, oh, I don't want to go to um, a shelter because maybe it's not accessible if I have a, you know, physical limitations or I have a pet. And this is even before you know, the pandemic brought you know, more concern for uh, public health and, and spread of disease and things like that. So yeah, lots going on where the VR can really sort of help to to bring to the forefront these these issues and barriers to evacuation yeah. that we know about. Yeah, it really, really makes me think about a, a, a little project I did at the University of Georgia where we were at the time, Minecraft was really big. And so we started thinking about ways to use these sort of multi-user virtual environments like Minecraft to teach weather and climate. And so in, in writing up some of that research, I talked about, and you know, I was listening to some of your sort of discussion with some of the, the more elderly population you were dealing with, and I came across this concept of digital natives and digital immigrants. <laughs> and so uh, our, our kids, you know, I've, we've got VR right upstairs with my son. He's a digital native. I mean, he's grown up around this, but yet some of those folks were probably like, what is this stuff? They're digital immigrants and some of these things that really comes to mind. And then the other thing that really resonates with me is this idea that and I'm, we're seeing this in some studies we're doing as well. This idea that people 
sort of have these reference storms or context storms in their minds is the worst. So nothing can be better, better, worse than that. So I'm good from here on out. And in most cases, you know, we know that we're just sort of at the tip of the iceberg in some of these uh, severe uh, uh, cases and extreme events, particularly as climate is changing. Uh, I'm curious, you know, I want to take this a bit further because you have often talked about visualizing your own home. Uh, how does that come into play with some of your virtual reality work? Right, that's an excellent question. And certainly one of the limitations thus far um, is that we just, in this VR hurricane simulation, had sort of a very boilerplate, like standard-looking suburban home that, sure, it will look like it could fit on Long Island, but it was not somebody's personal home. Um, so that could certainly be a limitation in that if it's, like, actually your own home you're seeing getting destroyed, maybe that resonates a bit more. Um, another thought, too, is adding in, you know, localized town landmarks. For example, Long Beach, like many coastal communities, has a boardwalk. So maybe you have an accurate rendering of the boardwalk and show that getting destroyed in a hurricane. Maybe, again, that um, makes people a little more, wow, thinking, wow, like, this is not just a video game. That is one of the complaints. It looks like a video game. But VR is always like a little bit cartoon-like, but if you try to make it as realistic as possible, that can certainly promote buying. So that's sort of, you know, the future the future steps in this sort of work is making it as realistic as possible to you know, try to try to emulate the, the real world as much as you can. And and I know in the process you're trying to emulate the real world to kind of convey what maybe being immersed in flooding looks like as opposed to these static 2D maps and things like that. But are there other emotions you're trying to elicit? That the emotional question is very interesting and right. The flooding I would say is the biggest strength of the VR in terms of you know the, the actual feedback we got in our research and in terms of what I've felt the priority should be in this. Um, always been a pet peeve of mine. I know it's come up with lots of meteorologists and in lots of research that there's that obsession, frankly, with the Saffir Simpson scale for hurricanes. And we know in the meteorology community that's not, it works, but it's not. It's, it's the a best, wind scale right? that doesn't tell you anything about the water hazards or the tornado hazards. Right. Right. And we know, of course, like the water is often the deadliest part of a hurricane, especially in a place like Long Island in New York, where uh, the way that we saw in Sandy, perfect example, yes, the wind caused some damage. But it was the water that made it such an unprecedented storm and such a, a, a devastating storm. And more recently, with the remnants of, of Hurricane Ida bringing um, catastrophic levels of rain. It was not wind at all. It was the flooding. Yet, of course, Ida actually killed more people in the New York area than where it made landfall on the Gulf Coast. So um, all these stories show us how important water is. You know, Harvey as well. Anyhow, so the uh, the water in VR was really, really powerful. Um, in the hurricane, the water kept rising up, kept rising up, and you can't escape. You're static in the hurricane simulation. You're sort of standing on the first floor of your home, kind of emulating if you're sort of missed out on evacuating and you're stuck on a barrier island, maybe the bridge is already washed out. You can't really go anywhere. Um, like in a one-story ranch-style home. So you're just seeing water, that water pour into the home, keep rising, keep rising. The simulation takes about 90 seconds, obviously sped up from real life, but we also know sometimes in a hurricane that water comes in very quickly. Not enough time, especially maybe if you're physically limited, to, to get out anyways. So people were really frightened seeing that water come up. We didn't drown people all the way, but we had water come from nothing to chest level in the 90-second simulation, and that frightened a lot of people, which generally seemed like, okay, this is a good thing. People were seriously scared uh, having this water rise and you feel trapped and you're fully immersed in the VR. The one negative that is 
it could re-traumatize people. And that was one of the issues with the Long Beach study where people were not as uh, into the VR as a communication tool. Some folks had had their homes you know, flooded with multiple feet of water in Sandy. And now here we are five years later showing them a VR simulation. And some people actually just sort of ripped the headset off because it was so um, you know, terrifying because they'd already gone through it once. So it shows that like many other sort of newer tools, VR has to be used and considered with some nuance. When we come back, I want to get your thoughts on where this all is headed next on the Weather Geeks podcast. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm uh, speaking with Dr. Jace Bernhardt from Hofstra University. And again, I pause every time because I, I have to admit, I didn't didn't realize that uh, one of our ilk was there uh, at Hofstra. And so I'm really, really thrilled to be talking with you today, Jace. Uh, the next question, you know, people fear the unknown. They fear AI and virtual reality and chat GPT. I mean, I mean we're, we're, in, we're firmly within the midst of this. And I think those of us in the field of weather and climate know it's here to stay and going to be a part of this. But what do you see as some hesitations, not just about from a fear perspective, about, but with using virtual reality to communicate weather risk? Right. And just taking a quick step back to my sort of context coming into this, for my master's thesis back about a decade plus ago, I did a study of jet contrail outbreaks and their impacts on climate. Ooh, and jet con, the chemtrails, which don't exist, by the way, that's conspiracy <laughs> stuff. I know that's where you're going, perhaps. Yeah. So, right. In a nutshell, as Marshall, you alluded to, um, there is a conspiracy theory about out there about chemtrails, which could frankly be a whole nother podcast with a, there are some folks doing really interesting work on contrails and conspiracy theories in general. But I actually more recently, I did that, that research back in graduate school about a decade ago, but more recently, since I'd come to Hofstra, I actually got interest once from an organization locally to hear more about contrails. Okay. This will be like a public outreach talk, but they actually, wanted to just yell at me about chemtrail <laughs> conspiracy theories for an hour. Um, so that being said, I've always had in mind with the VR that, yes, this is a newer technology. We know there's a lot of uh, hesitation out there for newer technology or just general distrust of things and institutions. Um, so I've always tried to you know consider that when designing this and communicating this and talking to people about this. Um, but certainly, you know, with, with newer technology, there is a bit of fear. That hasn't been, it hasn't been too bad um, in my experience. I, you know, I've gone out there in lots of different areas. I, I worked with the uh, Hurricane Awareness Tour back a few years ago um, through the Hurricane Hunters and, and the National Hurricane Center and actually went to different states across the eastern seaboard. So really, even, you know, not just in New York and other places um, uh, across the eastern U.S., it's been well-received. I've gone to a few AMS community fairs. So... I really think overall it's been overwhelmingly positive, um, the experience with VR. But yes, you do run into people sometimes that see it and just kind of like, eh, um, like at a table or a booth, eh, I don't really want to try this. This seems kind of weird. So 
you know, when, when thinking about the application of this, we always want to know that it might not be everyone's um, thing, especially with the sort of fear of technology sometimes. Um, and maybe the thought that it's tracking or something, I don't know. So, you know, that that was thinking, oh, maybe are people scared somehow of this collecting data on them? I'm not sure. So, right, I think there's always going to be hesitation. So we can't, you know, I don't think any communication tool is a one-size-fits-all approach, so to speak, and certainly VR is not, but it still has its utility. How do we take this to the next step? I mean, I, I mean, again, this is kind of obviously in a sort of a research or evaluation phase, I imagine, right now. But five years from now, ten years from now, where do you envision this being? Right, right. So sort of one um, exciting avenue we're taking this at present um, that speaks well to that question is um, I'm currently on a funded project through the New York Sea Grant to continue the RIP Current research, but specifically we're um, translating the RIP Current outreach materials, including the VR, into Spanish. And uh, there's a lot of work being done on this now. Joseph Trujillo Falcon. Yeah, he's been a guest uh, on Weather Geeks. Uh, Right, right. He is leading the charge in the weather enterprise, but I know among others as well, looking at these issues of bilingual communication. And there's still such a paucity of information out there in other languages uh, beyond English in the U.S., especially, frankly, at the you know sort of official government level. Um, we're just starting to get into you know flyers and things in other languages. Um, actually, part of this project, we're testing the flyer in Spanish for Rip Currents, the official flyer from the National Weather Service, and seeing there are some serious issues with it. So then we're trying to learn, take the lessons into account when translating the VR rip current simulation into Spanish. And of course, as you translate the simulation into different languages, um, you can just you know, broaden the, the, the access uh, people have to it. So that, to me, seems to be a really important avenue to continue going on. This has been amazing. Before I let you get out of here, are, are, I know that VR is really the focus of our discussion today, but are any other aspects of research that you're interested in or been dabbling with that you want to share? Certainly. I just wanted to touch on that, the uh, Spanish translation project quickly as it's going on right now, and it's been really interesting. So uh, we took the, the sort of official National Weather Service RIP Current Outreach brochure, a little two-page PDF brochure, it was translated to Spanish a few years ago. We uh, surveyed around Long Island of you know, both English and Spanish speakers to sort of compare how is the English version working versus the Spanish version working. Some fascinating results have been coming in. Um, I've been working with a, a community organization um, in Long Beach, a Hispanic-serving organization, and uh, translating the survey and, and you know, reaching community members that are bilingual or maybe just speaking Spanish. And uh, just some of the key results is the translation of Rip Current into Spanish that was used in this National Service brochure. I'm apologies for the not so great uh, pronunciation, but it's Corrientes de Lesaca. And for many people, we learned in the survey that did not translate to rip current to them. That translated to hangover current. Oh wow! Hangover from drinking too much. So if in big bold letters it says hangover current on a brochure, that's an official brochure from the U.S. government. You can imagine the issues with um, you know mistrust or just disinformation or is not understanding things or not buying into um, the brochure if it's tra not translated well. And this shows the issues of translating um, from English to Spanish, right? Ripcart, for example, is kind of an English idiom, so it's not necessarily a perfect translation. Maybe a translation that would go to, like, dangerous currents is better. Um, also, another interesting thing that came up is uh, we're big on sort of these rhyming calls to action. Um, for example, turn around, don't drown, 
break the grip of the rip is the one for rip currents. And those also don't translate well necessarily into other languages. You lose the rhyme, you lose the idiom. So it's just been fascinating getting into this world. And I'm by no means an expert, and there's lots of other people doing much more work on this. But it just has been interesting gaining an appreciation of this translation issue, which we know is going to become more and more important as our population in the U.S. continues to diversify and more and more languages are spoken. So that has been a really interesting and powerful project. And it's, it's great to see so many people doing work on that area. Yeah, it's really interesting that think back to a podcast episode we had several years ago with Nelly Carino I believe from Dallas and she talked about some of these very issues just things don't translate even some of the severe warnings or hurricane related warnings meaning meaningful lessons speak English but when they translate they mean different things and so I think that just sort of being aware of these, particularly as, as you move into other languages, is really uh, important. Really been fascinating. Can people find you on social media or on the internet anywhere? Sure. I'm on Twitter, uh, WXJace, J-A-S-E, Weather Jace, uh, shorthand. Um, the VR simulation, um, if you go to YouTube or even just Google search, uh, Hofstra VR Hurricane or VR Hurricane Simulation, you can find it on YouTube. And it's a bit old school now, but you can actually, if you still have the Google Cardboard uh, little VR thing, you can put that on load up the VR simulation in the YouTube app, slide your phone in and view it in VR at home. Um, and uh, it's also there as a low-res YouTube video, which is still actually pretty cool and has gotten a lot of views and comments. Uh, so that's that's out there as well. Certainly contact me for more information. Um, the, uh, the VR simulations can be shared. If people have VR headsets. It can be um, sent over pretty easily. Nice. I'll have to check it with my son who has one upstairs because uh, I want to check it out. Uh, thank you, really. This has been a fascinating. Before we get out of here, though, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, weather weenie, or a great geologist at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Rachel Talibart. Rachel is a seascape photographer and owner of F11 Workshops, which focuses on teaching others how to master the art of photography. Check out our social media pages if you know someone that would be a deserving Geek of the Week. Jace, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me, Marshall. It's truly a pleasure. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We're going to let Jace get out of here because I know he has to go teach class at Hofstra. <laughs> but thank you all for listening and watching the Weather Geeks podcast. Mm-hmm.